Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We've made it to Illinois, and we can't in good conscience pass through the state without at least a brief stop in Chicago, for a couple of reasons. The first is that this is the city where Tales to Terrify was spawned. For those of you who are newer to the podcast, or who haven't checked out our first few seasons, you might not know that we were birthed in a dark, cozy little corner of the home of founding host Larry Santoro, a little corner affectionately known as The Nook. There was always a warm fire, plenty of snacks and refreshments, and, of course, enough deliciously dark tales to satisfy any appetite. The podcasts certainly changed a bit over the years, but if you haven't already, I encourage you to take a trip back in time and have a listen. The second reason it's worth a stop a man by the name of H. H. Holmes, and his infamous Chicago Murder Castle. Easily one of the earliest and most terrifying serial killer stories in U.S. history. I'd be pretty surprised if there were many of you who weren't at least familiar with the name, and plenty of you are probably familiar with the terrifyingly true, dark history that surrounds it. But, for those who aren't, let me give you a quick rundown. Around the time of the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, pharmacist H. H. Holmes began construction of a new hotel across the street from his home. He'd had the building constructed several years earlier, but decided a huge event like the World's Fair meant he could cash in. So, he set to having a third story added to the existing retail and apartment building to do just that. The idea was, give the stream of visitors a place to stay, and line his pockets at the same time. Or, at least, that's what everyone thought he was doing. After he failed to pay architects, contractors, and a furniture supplier, though, an investigation was launched into the hotel. And what they found spoke to a different, much darker intent altogether. The building turned out to be a maze filled with dead-end corridors, hidden rooms, stairways to nowhere, and body-sized chutes leading to vats of quicklime in the basement. Even without forensic evidence to prove the heinous deeds that had taken place there, the hotel itself spoke volumes to Holmes's extracurricular activities. After he was arrested, Holmes confessed to the murder of 27 people, including several children, although only nine were conclusively proven. There's plenty more gruesome detail to be found in the H. H. Holmes story, and if you're not already familiar, I'd encourage you to do some digging around on your own. It's well worth a read. But our main destination this week is down a road slightly less traveled. 
were headed out of the big city and about 90 miles south to Watsika, Illinois. Laurency Venom moved with her family to Watsika in 1873, when she was just nine. But in the summer of 1877, she became sick, and the otherwise normal family's quiet life began a slow spiral into darkness. It started off as brief dizzy spells, but soon Laurency began to have fits and even pass out. She'd wake up refreshed and oblivious to her behavior while she was unconscious, behavior that consisted of sleep-talking. But it wasn't the typical mumblings of a dreaming sleeper. No, her words tended to be much darker. She'd talk about angels and demons and spirits, even those of her late brother and sister. Sometimes she'd dream of spirits chasing her through the house, and on other occasions her voice would be replaced by those of complete strangers, describing faraway people and places with surprising detail, sometimes even speaking in foreign tongues. But when she'd wake up, some days as much as eight hours later, she'd have no memory of any of it. Concerned, her parents brought in physician after physician, but none could find anything wrong with Laurency until one doctor finally suggested it was simply a case of deep mental illness and recommended the Venoms send Laurency to the State Insane Asylum in Peoria, Illinois. As the holiday season approached, the Venom household was anything but jolly. But as they prepared to send Laurency off to the asylum, they received a knock at the door. Asa Roth, a local spiritualist and one of the founders of the town, had come to share a troubling story. The cure, Roth said, was worse than the disease. His own daughter had been sent to that very asylum with similar symptoms and died there, isolated and alone. Like Laurency, Mary Roth had been prone to bouts of unconsciousness. She'd pass out, then wake again as if possessed, speaking with the voices of total strangers and she seemed to be developing clairvoyant abilities too, talking about faraway places and future events with incredible accuracy. But, unlike Laurency, Mary had begun experiencing these things from a very early age, and by her late teens, it had taken its toll on her. She'd become violent, and had developed an obsession with blood. After being caught cutting her arms with a razor, Mary was sent to the state asylum, where she later died. The still-grieving Asa Roth pleaded with his neighbors not to subject their own daughter to the same fate, and instead convinced them to call in Dr. E. Winchester Stevens, a physician and spiritist. Roth and Winchester weren't shy about inserting themselves into the Venom's lives, either. Both men had become convinced Laurency was the victim of possession by spirits. They eventually convinced her parents to allow them to mesmerize her, and nearly as soon as she was under, she began speaking with voices other than her own. After playing host to a few personalities, she finally relaxed and was taken over by a gentle yet startlingly familiar voice. The voice of Mary Roth. Laurency was very sick, Mary told them. She needed time away to heal, with the angels in heaven. And in the meantime, Mary promised she would take good care of Laurency's body. The Venoms felt lost. On one hand, they were thankful that, with Mary occupying their daughter's body, her fits had ceased and her health seemed to be improving. On the other hand, in the blink of an eye, their daughter had become a complete stranger. The Venoms and the Roths weren't close, after all. Sure, they know to see each other in passing, but very little about each other's families, which made Mary Roth's knowledge of the family, spoken through Laurency, pretty compelling stuff. Enough so that when she asked, the Venoms allowed her to move in with the Roth family for several months. She shared memories of things only Mary should know, of intimate family moments and even details of her self-harm. 
she spent long hours with the Roth family, playing with their siblings, spending time with her parents, filling the hole in their hearts that Mary had left when she died. But as spring approached, Mary, who had been so talkative and vibrant, began to quiet and pull away. She confessed one day to Mrs. Roth that her time was drawing to an end. Over the subsequent days, she took time to say her goodbyes to each family member in turn, and in mid-May, Mary faded from the now healthy body, and Laurency returned. She was lucid and refreshed, with no lingering health problems to speak of. She returned to her family, too, who were overjoyed to have their daughter back healthy. Not too long after that, Laurency got married and moved to another town. But throughout the years, she'd occasionally return for seances in the Roth house, and once again allow Mary the chance to speak with her family. Not all possessions, it turns out, result in evil deeds and spinning heads. Sometimes it's love, not malice, that draws a spirit back for one last visit. Let's move on to some fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from William Meikle. William Meikle is a Scottish writer now living in Canada, with over 30 novels published in the genre press and more than 300 short story credits in 13 countries. He has books available from a variety of publishers, including Dark Regions Press and Severed Press, and his work has appeared in a large number of professional anthologies and magazines. He lives in Newfoundland with whales, bald eagles, and icebergs for company. When he's not writing, he drinks beer, plays guitar, and dreams of fortune and glory. Children of the night, listen with me to William Meikle's Supply and Demand, first published in Daily Science Fiction in November 2010. The man who walked into my office was old school, through and through. A squad of little old ladies on Harris had toiled for years to make his suit. His school tie was knotted just right and his brogue squeaked as he walked across the room. He looked to be in his seventies, but held his back ramrod straight. He strode into the room as if he owned it and thrust a hand at me that I couldn't refuse to shake. Thanks for seeing me, doctor, he said. In truth, I didn't have any option. All psych cases from the ER were referred straight to me, and the call had come in about the strange little man in reception less than five minutes before. I didn't quite know what to make of him yet. All I knew was that he had thrown a screaming fit when an orderly approached him. He sat down across the desk from me and smiled. I'm not mad, you know. Prove it, I said, smiling back. He crossed his legs making sure that the seams on his trouser legs were straight and that no ankle was showing above his socks before he was happy to relax. Do you believe in God, doctor? Yes, I said. Good, that will make this easier. I started to notice nearly 30 years ago, he said. Notice what? Just give me a chance and I'll tell you. But first, another question if I may. Do you think you have a soul? Yes, I replied again. I am not overly religious, but I do believe there's something that survives us. Call it a soul if you must. An interesting position for a scientific man to take, is it not? More common than you might think, I replied. But we are not here to talk about me. Do you have a point? Yes, and as I said, I'm getting to it. He fiddled with his cuffs, making sure that just the right amount of shirt showed. One of the perils of getting old, he said. The world changes so much around you. And back then, when I started to see them, 
It was still the 70s and the world had changed so much already that I thought they were just another manifestation. They? He waved a hand at me. Yes, I'm sure you hear about them all the time from patients. But I'm not ready for the tin foil hat yet. No, what I was seeing was children. Little children. Children with blank stares. Children with no joy in their hearts. Children without souls. And they were everywhere. He stopped. Sudden tears running down his cheeks. It's not uncommon, I said softly. As we get older, we get disassociated from the consensus reality and again, he waved me away. I'm old, not stupid, he replied. For 30 years, I've watched them and now they are in positions of power. Policemen, doctors, lawyers and soon they'll be politicians. And where will we be then? I don't quite understand what you're trying to tell me. The soulless. They're walking the earth in millions and their numbers are growing. His tears coursed freely now and he started to get agitated. My hand crept closer to my panic button but I didn't hit it. As far as I can work it out, there are two reasons, he finally continued. One of them gives me slight hope for my own future but neither is good news. Either God has given up on us completely. In which case, it's all over. Heard the shouting. Or, I asked, when he didn't show any sign of continuing. Or, there's only a finite number of souls available at any one time and we're growing too fast for God to keep up. Don't you think that God being God would have factored that in? Maybe he did, the old man said. Maybe he never meant for us to get so ahead of ourselves and... Here's what really worries me, Doctor. Maybe what I'm seeing is his way of telling us our time is up. He started to look around him as if afraid he was being watched. I tried to keep my voice low and calm. And why do you think only you are seeing whatever it is that you're seeing? He was quiet for a long time before answering. I think everybody sees. It's just they choose not to notice. Violence escalates. People get killed for little more than the loose change in their pockets. We let babies become heroin addicts before they are even born. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. His voice rose into a shout. Our moral compass is broken and we know it. We just choose to look the other way while the number of the soulless grow and we sink ever closer to the end and there's nothing I can do about it. When the orderly came in, the old man took one look at him and screamed even louder, Look! He's one of them! Eventually, it took three orderlies and a dose of Thorazine to quiet the old man. He had one last look at me as he was carried out. Just look, he whispered, please. I watched the orderlies carry him off down the corridor, then went to the one place I knew I could trust to lift my spirits after such an encounter. The maternity ward was, as usual, full of hustle and bustle. Along the far wall, a row of fathers looked into the recovery area where row after row after row of newborn babies lay. Just looking at them always calmed me, reassured me that despite all the sad despair I saw every day, there was some hope in a new life. But today was different. The babes lay still, quiet. The dark, cold stairs followed me as I walked quickly away. That was William Meikle's Supply and Demand.
is read by Kaushik Narasimhan. Kaushik is a management consultant by day and a writer by night, with a keen interest in psychedelics and role-playing video games. Thank you, Kaushik. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Our second story tonight is from author Steve Toes. Steve Toes was born in North Yorkshire, England, and now lives in Munich, Germany. He writes regularly for Fortean Times and Folklore Thursday. His fiction has appeared in Shimmer, Lackingtons, Orialis, Not One of Us, Cabinet de Fays, and Pantheon Magazine amongst others. In 2014, Call Out, first published in Innsmouth Magazine, was reprinted in the Best Horror of the Year 6, and two of his stories have just been selected for Best Horror of the Year 11. He also likes old motorbikes and vintage cocktails. Children of the Night, lend me your ears for Steve Toes for Velktog, first published in Lackington's. Blumen, Blumen, selbst pflücken. Kommt mit mir nach Hause. Du bist süß und sehr, sehr schön. Drinnen oder draußen. Eine ist weiß, eine ist gelb. Einige begann sich zu röten. Oben Boden, auf dem Tisch, immer für die Toten. Competing honeysuckle and magnolia wafted in from the castle grounds as Angela opened the small apartment's windows. Ah, don't they smell beautiful? Hmm? Joe didn't look up from his laptop, attention held by cascading columns of figures. The flowers in the gardens, don't they smell beautiful? He put the laptop on the rented sofa. Angela stood aside, resting against the thick, cool walls. Joe leaned out of the casement. Do you think they'll mind? If I pick some to brighten up this place? Angela asked, putting her hand on his. As long as you don't go overboard, don't strip out every last bloom. I'm sure they'll be fine. She knelt on the grass, leaning into the border with a pair of scissors as a substitute for the secateurs she didn't own. 
Beside her, a pile of already cut hyacinths and marigold. <coughs> Entschuldigung, das ist leider nicht Ordnung. Diese Blumen dürfen Sie nicht pflücken. Angela turned, noticed the grass stains on her skin, and tried to see the person speaking to her. The sun was behind them, and their face hidden. Es tut mir leid, mein Deutsch ist nicht so gut, she said, unable to hide her English accent in her rehearsed German. Sie sprechen Englisch, the figure said. Angela stood. It was the gardener she'd seen maintaining the grounds over the past couple of weeks. He rested on his leaf rake as if he had trouble standing. Yeah, English, she said. Angela Bay, we've only just moved in. The corner apartment on the second floor of the castle. He nodded and looked down at the pile of flowers by her feet. Residents are not allowed to cut flowers from these gardens. Sorry. She held out her hand and he ignored it. I didn't think you'd miss a handful. And if everyone did that, then replenished their vases when the flowers died, how many would be left? I said I was sorry. On the outskirts of the town there are patches of Zerp's plugin bloomen. Pick them yourself, flowers. There is a small charge, but you must get them from there, not damage these plants. Angela nodded and glanced up toward her apartment. The window was shut. Joe, out of sight. I will do in future. The gardener pointed at the severed plants, sliced from their soil-bound roots. The flowers were already wilting to sepia in the sun. Those will have to stay. I understand, and I'm sorry. Please don't do it again, Frau Bay. I won't. She tucked the scissors into her back pocket and, hands empty, walked towards the vast gates leading to the town beyond. The flower patch wasn't hard to find, an eruption of colour on the edge of a rattling maize field. By the roadside stood a concrete-filled barrel with a small coin box. A neon-handled kitchen knife hung from a piece of green nylon string. The flowers were arranged by type. Dahlias to the left of the field, sunflowers rising in the centre, and gladioli on the right-hand side. Tucking her trouser cuffs into her socks, Angela walked down a plough furrow into the midst of the flowers, stumbling on uncleared stone in the soil. The scents pulled her in, dragging her from one stalk to the next, blues and purple petals stained with yellow reds more vivid than any forest fire. She ran them through her fingers, feeling their velvet skin and the slight bulge of veins under the surface. Sunflower heads drooped as if embarrassed to be so tall, stalks like sharkskin. Then, dahlias, globes of dead planets reborn in nested florets. She cupped one after another in her hands, let them settle in her palms, lowered her face and allowed the fragrance to rise into her. Lost to herself, she wandered from row to row to row, deeper into the centre, far from the road. To the middle of the small field, she spotted something tight to the worn dirt and her breath caught in her throat. Sunlight reflected off the metal staples holding the limbs in place. Fur flayed back to show yellowed bones. The chest cavity was empty of organs, Instead, stuffed with petals and seed heads. Angela stepped back, losing her footing on the loose soil. The skull had been separated from the body and placed a few feet away, delicate bottom jaw still in place. She had no way to tell what the animal had been. In between the picked clean head and the body grew three rows of the most beautiful flowers she had ever seen. Each stalk inclined to the floor with the weight of blooms barely any open. Hints of colour far more vibrant than those in the plough furrows around her. She only meant to pick two or three. By the time she finished, Angela balanced over a dozen stalks in the crook of her arm. Why do you think the colours are so bright? The flowers lay on the table in front of her, spread out on old newspaper. Four vases stood around the edge. The blades of her scissors to one side, smeared in green. Nutrients from the body, maybe? What did you say it was again? Joe said, picking up one of the severed stems. 
Couldn't tell. Rabbit, maybe? Probably some kind of biodynamic farming thing. Burying cow horns full of manure under the third crescent moon and all that nonsense. He gathered up the other offcuts and dumped them in the bin. What on earth do you know about biodynamic farming? I read about it in a magazine once. On a plane, as far as possible from any fields in cowshit, he said, kissing her neck and carrying one of the vases over to the window. They look good. The light catches them just right, Angela said. She carried the next vase to the other window nook, inhaling the scent. Brings a bit of colour to the place. In the grounds, the gardener was de-heading espalier roses. Several flowers in full bloom fell into the soil. Instead of leaning down to pick them up, he ground the petals under his boot and turned to look back at the house. Angela shuddered. Walking back to the dining table, she folded the severed foliage into the newspaper and dumped it into the bin. Did you replace these? Sunlight shone through the vase's green water. Several drowned flies trapped between the stems. Where the petals had started to curl the night before, they were now plump and fleshy again. Joe looked up from his suitcase, piles of clothes fanned out around him. Shook his head. Did you top up the water? Pour in some more plant food? he asked, compressing two jumpers into the suitcase. Angela replaced the vase on the windowsill, lining the base up with the circular water stain. No, I didn't feed them. The colours have changed too. I'm sure I put the reds and the blues together, and the yellows and oranges over in the kitchen. Now they're all mixed. She watched Joe pick up three shirts, try to choose one, and then stuff all of them in. Maybe they change pigment as they age? Kneeling. She folded her suit jacket in half and passed it to him. Are you sure you're not playing a little prank on me before you go? Did you sneak out last night and pick some fresh ones? Yeah, because that's the sort of thing I do the night before a conference. Go traipsing around the fields in the dark, picking flowers. She handed him a stack of vests and waited while he found space for them. Well, you certainly weren't packing. He grimaced at her. Funny. Check my shoes. I didn't go out last night. It's not like there's any way to go around here. You do like it here, though, don't you? It is beautiful. He encased her hands in his. It is that. And I do get regular work trips away to civilized places, with shops that open on Sundays and bars with more than one type of beer. How are you getting to the airport? Driving yourself? Taxi. Ernst? Are there any other taxis in town? Ernst it is, then. She watched Ernst's pale grey Audi make its way down the castle drive, Joe's suitcase visible on the back seat. Alone, she looked again at the flowers. Several petals had already fallen. She picked one up and held it between two fingers, squeezing the silken flesh until it smeared her fingertips with colour. She brushed the remains into her hand, dumped them into the bin and went to bed, alone. Saturday morning, and the small town centre was full, everyone trying to get their shopping done before midday closing. Angela let the tide of people carry her through the square, past the small shrine to a saint whose name she never remembered. Small bouquets tied with red ribbons were stacked against the statue's marble feet. She went into each shop coming out to find herself beside the statue once more. The flowers still stacked up. Are those normally there? She said to the baker, filling her shopping bag with fresh bretzen and zemo. The flowers? They're for tomorrow. At home, Angela unpacked and sat down at the table, sipping her coffee. Phone in front of her. She pressed her finger against the screen and checked again for an SMS. Still nothing. Turning on Messenger, she brought up the thread she shared with Joe and stared at the last three unanswered messages. I know you get distracted by the bright lights of the city. A reply once in a while would be nice. Throwing the phone out of reach, she stared out of the window. In the grounds, the gardener was burning a pile of waste branches and leaves. Smoke drifted back toward the building. Half-scorched leaves glittered in the fumes. 
She closed the windows. The smell of ash still found its way inside, around the old wooden window frames. Church bells rattled her awake. Putting on her dressing gown, she watched the other residents parade from the castle's main entrance down to the gate. Most wore their Sunday best, children holding gloved hands. The gardener waited by a vat of hot liquid atop a worn wooden table. He handed each new person a glass, and Angela watched each one take a sip, faces obscured by steam. She closed the curtains and got dressed. Each door on her floor held a different coloured rose, broken stem laced into the lock. She turned to look back at her own apartment. The flower was pale yellow, already wilted. She pulled it free and forced it into her pocket. Angela took the cup, the decoration of gold-edged blooms glistening with the heated wine inside. She took a mouthful, trying to identify the herbs. Frau Verwelktag, Frau B, the gardener said, wiping his hands on his smock. Verwelktag? Wilting day. A time to remember that all things must rot into the soil so others can grow. She tried to join in, sipped the drink until the bitter flavour tainted her tongue, bought a bouquet from the children, stood at the entrance to the marketplace, took photos of the traditional costumes, all lace and velvet and animal fur. The young girls wore white dresses and carried bunches of daisies tied together with parcel string. Garlands of fuchsias, foxgloves and asters hung between lampposts, low enough to brush pollen on the heads of those passing beneath. Grey horses with bridles decked in blooms, the colour of the local brauerei, dragged a barrel-stacked cart in endless circles, mouths foaming with the effort. Angela held her phone up to take a photo and attached it to a message for Joe. Show him what he was missing out on. When she saw there was still no reply, any enthusiasm left her. She threw her bouquet of already dying flowers into the bin, and it landed on half-empty beer bottles, sending up a cloud of drunk wasps, and she set off back to the apartment. In the corridor, the mixture of summer fragrances and rotting vegetation was overpowering. She opened the door, and the stench intensified. Angela walked the short distance to the bedroom and threw her coat on the chair back. The figure was barely visible in the gloom, curled up under the sheets as if in pain. She looked around for Joe's suitcase, gripping the collar of her coat. Joe? Are you okay? I didn't think you were due back yet. You should have called ahead. I, I was in town. The bedside lamp pushed shadows against the wall, but did not disperse them. Are you ill? Do you want me to get you something? She pulled the sheet back. The legs were shaped from twisted lengths of ivy, each leafed strand woven into the next. Where the chest should have been, hundreds of flowers had been placed on top of each other. Roses, lilies, pansies and foxgloves, all arranged into the form of a sleeping man. Lupins as knuckles, daisies as vertebrae. Where the head should be, a crush of the same flowers dying in vases around the apartment. Joe? Are you under there? The last drop of hope left her as she tore through the dying flower heads to the sheets beneath. The mattress was sodden, stems already rooting themselves amongst the springs, searching for nutrients. She wrenched a handful free and flung them to the carpet. There was nothing but petals and seeds and stems. She tried to clear the bed, filling bin bag after bin bag with dead plants, stopping every few minutes to catch her breath. Instead, she sat on the floor and tried her phone again and again until the battery ran out and she was alone with the stench of death. The singing woke her. Out of habit, she reached for her phone to check the time, but the battery had not charged itself while she slept. Standing, she looked out the window. The townspeople stood around the perimeter wall. Each wore a mask of wilting blossoms. In their disguises, it was hard to recognize anyone. 
not that she knew her neighbours well enough anyway. Children stood between their parents, priests from the local church next to uniformed police and farmers. They did not move. In their hands were lanterns. Those held by adults were cylinders of light. The children's were shaped like ships, trains and horses. They swung them in low arcs, leaving trails in the dark. The flowers danced in the flames. One figure separated himself from the cordon and walked up the path. His flower mask was old and complex, layer upon layer of roses and gladioli woven until the weight bent his neck toward the ground. He rested on a leaf rake, a large knife in his other hand. While he walked, the others began to sing. She recognized some of the words from her basic German. Others were too heavy in dialect for her to make out. All the time, the gardener made his slow progress towards the castle. There was nowhere to go. Only one door out of the apartment. And then what? Run through the crowd into the countryside? She listened to him climb the stairs, each step marked with the clatter of rake tines on stone, the knife scraping the wall as if he couldn't quite hold the blade's weight. He stopped outside the door and knocked. Waited. Knocked again. Frau Bey, bitte öffnen Sie die Tür. Please open the door. There is nowhere you can run. Looking out of the window, Angela searched for a ledge to get as far from the old man as possible. Where was Joe? Why wasn't he here? All she could see outside was the ring of flames illuminating the floral masks. In the stillness, she recognized more of the song they were singing. Blumen. Blumen, selbst pflücken, kommt mit mir nach Hause. Du bist süß und sehr, sehr schön, drinnen oder draußen. Eine ist weiß, eine ist gelb, einige begann sich zu röten. Ob im Boden, auf dem Tisch, immer für die Toten. A key slid into her lock and turned. The door opened toward her, letting light into the living room. The gardener blocked the way. He panted from the effort of climbing the stairs. Frau Bey, there really isn't anywhere to go. Angela ran. She was taller than the man and he fell easily. The rake wedging itself against the wall so he couldn't turn. In the hallway, she hit the light switch and ran towards the staircase. There was no one else in the castle. Every other apartment was silent. She took the stairs two at a time, hesitating in the hallway. One door led to the drive, straight into the waiting arms of the singers. Behind her was another, small, wooden, that led into the courtyard and beyond to the service part of the complex. She opened the latch and ran. The paths were overgrown, strawberry runners creeping over the gravel. Brambles and rose bushes erupted from the beds. Ignoring the scratches, she ran toward the old glass houses at the far end of the grounds. Her plan wasn't complicated. Through the nurseries, over the wall. The door hung loose on its hinges. She pulled it toward her and dry putty fell onto her arm. Inside, the air was heavy with the sweet scent of compost. On either side of her, wooden tables held soil and bedding plants. Seedlings not mature enough to endure the cold outside, spindly tomato plants knotted around thin canes. She looked back at her footsteps in the dirt, then forward to make sure no one was cutting off her escape. The scream was out of her mouth before she could even quiet herself. Joe's body lay in one of the vast seedling trays, naked, arms and legs held down with metal brackets. His face was intact, eyes open, torso split from neck to groin, organs emptied out and the space filled with rich, Dark topsoil, skin blackened with rot around the broken tips of his ribs, in the cavity that once held his heart and lungs, seedlings now grew. She pictured the gardener mulching down Joe's liver for plant food, crushing bones as a meal to sprinkle in the beds. Reaching out, she touched the tips of his fingers, feeling where roots thin as worms prized apart his skin, remembering for a moment when his hand last held hers. Behind her, the door opened. The gardener stood with his knife hanging toward one side. Please don't flee, Frau Bey. I'm getting old and get tired these days. 
Joe's fingers tightened around hers. Go, Angela. Just go. She shook, wanting to scream out all the air in her lungs and give it to her husband, stitch him back together and repair him, scoop out the dirt with her bare hands and hold him until he faded. Instead, she ran. The back of the glass house was mildewed and she soon kicked through the wooden panels, glass shattering into foot-long splinters. Behind the building, a forgotten pile of rotting kitchen waste rose against the boundary wall. She climbed up, ignoring insects skittering over her legs. Straddling the wall, she checked the drop and lowered herself into the woodland beyond. She heard the townspeople singing. Too many people. She ran deeper, amongst the trees, away from the lights, away from the singing voices. On the other side of the wall, she heard the gardener follow her route. Sie flieht. Sie ist zu schnell. Ich kann nicht verfolgen. Durch den Wald. Angela allowed herself a moment of relief, ducked into the undergrowth, away from her pursuers. Couldn't remember where she would come out. As long as she kept heading away, from the castle, from her home, she would be okay. Get to the next village. She would be okay. She would be okay. She spotted them by their lanterns, a line of lights drifting through the dark, sweeping up the hill. She watched them getting closer, knew they would be around the wood in moments. The far side was still clear. She took off her coat, threw it to one side, ran through the shrubs, kept low. The woodland ended at a ditch. She scrambled through, grass and mud against her skin, reminding her of Joe's broken hand. Her fingers grasped. She emptied her stomach into the brambles, ran for cover, knelt down. The sunflowers loomed over her. Behind them, the rows of gladioli and dahlias. She tried to see a way out. The townspeople just stood, all along the edge of the flower patch. Lanterns held still. They were not singing now, just waiting. Angela did not move, stayed hidden in the flowers. Sunflower stalks rasped her skin. As one, their voices rose and they moved forward. Angela waited to see if they would stop again, but they did not. Instead, trampling the flowers into the dirt and stones. She waited until the last moment and ran deeper, not caring about the streaks of pollen on her clothes or scratches across her face. Nothing at all, apart from getting as far away from the lanterns as possible. She pictured Joe holding onto life through some cruel trick of nature waiting to say her name. She drew strength from it. Just before the middle of the flower patch, the ground rose slightly, crowned with four large rhododendron bushes, all the flowers removed. She stood beside them and looked out into the night. The lanterns were on all sides now. The petal masked, shoulder to shoulder. There was no way to break through. Their voices rose again, not singing, raucous with joy. She stumbled down the far side of the hill, tripped over something embedded in the soil. Cold. Metal. The first of four tethers, each hammered into the furrows. She pulled herself up, scanned the villagers, tried to spot the children in the crowd, saw one, lowered her shoulder, ran forward, ready to break through. There was no impact. The child stepped to one side and something sharp slid across the back of her ankle. Angela fell face down into the dirt. Adult hands turned her over, held her in place as they wrapped her wrists in garlands and placed a crown of honeysuckle on her head. Slowly, they put their lanterns aside and carried her back to where the tethers waited to hold her to the soil. That was Steve Toes for Velktag, as read by Kelly Andrew. Kelly lives in South Africa, where she recently graduated with a BA in psychology and German. She enjoys reading, indie films, and cats, as well as telling stories, of course. 
Working in a bookstore gives her ample time to read and tell stories to her colleagues, but shh, don't tell her boss. Thank you, Kelly. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. I'll remind you again, submissions are open, so if you have any creepy tales, we would love to hear them. And of course, if you haven't already, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash tales to terrify. Even just a dollar a month goes an incredibly long way in helping us to produce this podcast week after week. We appreciate and rely on the support of our patrons, and we would love to count you among them. Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by our editors, Seth Williams and Pete Morsellino, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Music by Spencer Desparty, and theme by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week, as we possess your mind with more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.